Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name this morning, and welcome to this service. Can you feel the excitement? You think about it? There's something about a service like this that is exciting. And I just want to give a a special welcome to those of you family members of the three that are getting baptized today. It's good to have you here, and thanks for making an effort to be here this morning in spite of, of the weather. You know, as I thought about some of the songs that we sang here today, we sang about the love of God. We sang a song that said, Sin and death his kingdom shall destroy. And yet we also had a devotional here this morning where Arlen mentioned something about the cost of following Christ, the potential for persecution. And we think about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine this morning, and we wonder what they're going through. And our brothers and sisters around the world and other countries where a service like this, a baptism like this, a commitment like this, would for sure mean persecution, if not death. And I want us to think about that this morning, because for us here today, it's a celebration. It's exciting. But it's also a commitment, a lifelong commitment to Christ. So we anticipate a very special service today. We have three among us that have requested baptism and have requested membership here at Mine Road Church. This is a special and a sacred ceremony. I trust that God will be honored as we move forward with baptism here today. As we consider baptism, I wonder where your mind goes. Because baptism is one of those things, as we read scripture, you know, you can't just pull three or four or five scripture passages together and figure it all out. That's just not how baptism is. As a matter of fact, you could probably preach multiple sermons on baptism, and yet there's still more layers to it, to the onion, so to speak. And it's something that is infused with meaning. So I don't know where your mind goes today. You might, you might think about your baptism. Perhaps that was a powerful moment in your life when God was very real to you and you publicly made that commitment before others to him. Or maybe you wonder why when you got baptized that didn't somehow just remove the challenges and the temptations of life, or why it didn't usher in a perfect time of perfect unity and perfect relationship with Christ. Or maybe there's questions in your mind as to why does baptism matter at all? Yeah, there's scriptures that talk about it, there's scriptures that command it, but what does it mean? What does it really mean? And so one of the purposes of this sermon today is to trace baptism through the scripture and see what God has for us in that. One of the things I'd like to mention here as we get started is that baptism is an ordinance. And I should ask, I should do a quick quiz here for the three as to what an ordinance is. And I suppose most of us here today could could explain what an ordinance is. It's something, it's an outward visible ceremony that we do together, typically. There's multiple people involved, typically. Established by God with a deep spiritual meaning. 
And one of the things I want to mention here is that an ordinance is different from a ritual. At least the way, the picture in my mind that I have a ritual is something that you just do over and over and over again, and you don't really know why. The meaning of, of what you do is just in what you do, and that's it. But that's not what baptism is. Baptism is infused with meaning and value and purpose because it's connected to something much larger than just what we do here today. If it's just sprinkling a few drops of water and drying your hair off with a towel, that's a ritual. But it goes much deeper than that. It goes much beyond that. And we'll talk about that some this morning. Interestingly, the word baptism is not found anywhere in the Old Testament, at least I couldn't find it. However, there's themes throughout Scripture and throughout the Old Testament in particular that talk about baptism or talk about the idea of it and point ultimately to Christ. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We'll start at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, I would say, is the first mention of the idea of baptism, and you might wonder what I mean by that. But as we look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And so in the beginning, God created out of nothing. And in verse 2, God created out of the waters. Verses 6 and 7 talk about the firmament. God created a firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And so God, out of the chaos of water, God creates a world, a world where man can live and thrive. And then God creates, in that world, he creates a pocket of air between the waters under and the waters above. And we might not think about this pocket of air very often, but as far as we know, it's the only pocket of air like it in the whole vast universe that God created that's suitable for life. Nothing else even comes close. And so God creates the world. God creates this pocket of air. He separates the waters above and below, and then God creates dry land for man to live on, and God calls it good. God chose one part of his universe in which to put his remnant, is what I'm going to call it. And we'll see this theme of the remnant throughout the Old Testament here as we look at various scriptures related to this. And so we see that out of water, God creates a safe place for mankind to thrive. The next story we'll look at is in Genesis 6 through 9. You can turn there. And that is of Noah and the flood. In this story, God again saves a remnant from the destruction of water. And actually, I'm going to turn back to 1 Peter and read a couple verses there because 1 Peter clearly connects the flood with the idea of baptism. 1 Peter chapter 3 starting in verse 20, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was up preparing, wherein few that is eight souls were saved by water. This water 
I'm going to read, it, read in the NIV. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it mentions in here that eight souls were saved by water. And I, I believe that probably a better translation, and I think Strong's would probably agree with me, that a more appropriate translation would be here that they were saved through water. Not by the water, but through the water. Regardless, the water of the flood in Noah's day somehow is symbolic of baptism. And I wonder how that is exactly. The baptism that saves us also. But as we think about it a bit more, we see here that the ark in, in the flood represents Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ saves us again from that water of chaos that God brought to destroy the world. And in a sense, in a sense, the water also spared these eight souls from the wickedness in the world. God used the water to bring destruction and to bring judgment. And God also provided an ark to save his remnant of eight souls that he, that he had here at the flood. So how is the flood like baptism? In the flood, the water brought death. Whereas in baptism, water is administered as a symbol of cleansing. Water is also mentioned elsewhere in scripture as a symbol of cleansing. In Ephesians chapter 5, 26, it mentions the washing of water by the word. One of the things that I want to mention here, and particularly to you three, as we think of baptism this morning, one of the things that you're doing this morning is that you're identifying publicly with Christ. In the same way that Noah identified publicly with Christ or with God by building the ark, entering the ark, and staying in the ark. In that same way, the three of you today are publicly identifying with Christ. And I say public. We might not think that this is public. It's not open to the public, we might say. And yet it is. This is a public declaration that you are identifying with Christ. And again, God saves his remnant. I want to look at a couple of additional stories in the Old Testament. Two parallel stories that bookend the time that the Israelites spent wandering in the desert. The first is the crossing of the Red Sea. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, and we know this story, but we can feel the emotion, and we can feel what the people felt here in verse 10. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 10, when Pharaoh drew nigh, so the people of Israel are going towards the Red Sea, Pharaoh's coming behind them, and here in verse 10, when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were, no, there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. What a statement. It would have been better for us 
Essentially, if we spiritualize this, what I believe what they're saying is it's it'd been better for me to die in my sin apart from God than to experience God and go through this difficult trial that I'm going through with Pharaoh bearing down on me. What a statement. And we can see the drama unfold in verse 19. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. The pillar of the cloud went, went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a, clou- a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that one came not near the other all the night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And so in chapter 14, it kind of gives us what happened. It tells us in basic terms what happened. But I want to look at chapter 15 because this is the song that they sang about this happening. And this song brings in the emotion of the time. A little bit more, I believe. And I want to look particularly at verse 8. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright as in heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. So it wasn't just, okay, Moses raises his hands, the waters go back, and there's dry land, and we go through. No, that's not, that's not, that's not all of it. That's not the emotion of it. That's not the feeling of it. The idea here is that Through divine nostrils, God is blowing with wind, blowing back this water, keeping it apart. And the word there, congealed, the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. That has the idea of like curdled milk or frozen water. And the consistency that I I think there we might be able to identify with the best is that of jello. The water became like jello on either side. Imagine that. That's what God did here for the Israelites. Now this happening is reviewed and relived throughout the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in Joshua, in Nehemiah, at least four times in the Psalms. It's mentioned in the New Testament, in Acts, in Hebrews, and I'm probably missing some. But this became the defining point for the children of Israel. This was the point where they could always look back and say, look what God did for us. Look how God spared us. Look how God brought us out. Not only look how God brought us out, but look how God destroyed our enemies. And I want to highlight that for you three here this morning. This is a special day. It's not a day where there's victory and you will never fight again. We talked about that some during our Sunday school time this morning. But as you look back, what I want you to encourage you to see is how God brought you out from where you were, opened up the sea, you walked through, your enemy followed you, and God let the water come back and destroyed the enemy. That's where you're at today. Now there's more enemies ahead. God did not destroy all the enemies. There's more enemies ahead. There were enemies in the desert. There were enemies in the land of Canaan. And there were enemies that came from other countries. So God did not destroy all the enemies. 
But God destroyed the enemies that were pursuing them to that point. And I wonder what, what would have happened if God had not destroyed the army of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Because they would have come out and surely chased the Israelites eventually. They had a powerful army at the time. But this was God's way of securing his people to get them across the Red Sea and to get them to the covenant. So I would encourage you to see this as a day that you can look back and say, look what God did. And because God did that, I know that God can do this. You see that again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Because God did that, I know that he can do this. Because God has saved you, has worked in your life, has given you salvation thus far, God can also see you through all the way to the end. So God brought his people out through the Red Sea into the place of the covenant on Mount Sinai. And this baptism in the Red Sea, you might say, led to the time of the covenant. And we often look at the story of Moses and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, and we read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and we kind of groan at all the laws and the rules and the regulations and the requirements. Shame on us. We kind of groan because it looks like a heavy load, and you might feel that way this morning. Look at all the things that God wants me to do, all these requirements. But shame on us if we think that way, because this was God proposing to his people. This was God making a covenant with his people. This was God promising, if you will do these things, I will do this thing. Isn't that incredible? God made a covenant with people. Even though God knew that the people would fail, God still made that covenant. And God is making a covenant with you today if you will, if you will accept that from him. All they had to do was obey him. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, I won't turn there, Paul, Paul references the crossing of the Red Sea with baptism. And so I want to encourage you to think about that this morning. This is, in a sense, your Red Sea experience. What happened in Egypt is behind you. God did all those things for you, those miracles for you in Egypt. You're out of Egypt. You're through the Red Sea. And now it's up to you. God is giving you the covenant if you will take, if you will take him up on it. The choice is yours, whom you will serve. And again, I want to emphasize that God spares a remnant of his people. God spares a remnant of his people. On the other side of the desert was another river called the Jordan River. And God brought his people up to the Jordan and I would see this as a parallel passage, a parallel event in the history of Israel. God required the priest. This was different in the way he did it here. God required the priest to step into the river before the river was parted. And as I understand it, the river wasn't like a beach in the ocean that you just walk into. The river was a bank. And so the priests were, in a sense, required to almost jump in or stumble in before the waters were parted. They were to take that step of faith before the waters would divide. 
So perhaps the happening at the Jordan River was not quite as dramatic as the crossing of the Red Sea. But I'm sure that the people thought about the rich symbolism of what was happening here and what had happened before. There were, there were only been a few people that would have experienced both, a very few that would have remembered both. But certainly this was a sign of God's power and connection back to the crossing of the Red Sea. And again, I want to emphasize that God spared a remnant of his people through that time. And I don't know if I'm making too much of the symbolism, but perhaps you'll have Jordan River experiences in your life in the future. This is, I believe, a Red Sea type experience. But maybe there'll be other times in life where God will bring you through a Jordan River type experience as well, as you recall this day. But now I want to move to the New Testament, because this is the climax to the story, to the history of baptism. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. And again, as I mentioned before, the words baptize and baptism are not found in the Old Testament, at least not that I could find. The first that we find, this word is in relation to John the Baptist calling for repentance and baptizing in the Jordan River. Matthew 3, verse 14 through 17. I'll start back in verse 13. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the culmination of the thread of the story of baptism throughout Scripture. Everything in the Old Testament points up to Christ, and everything in the New Testament points back to Christ. Jesus came to be baptized of John. John didn't think that was appropriate. John was a mere human. But, of course, Jesus indicated this is proper for right now to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus, Jesus was baptized there by John. Just like at the creation, all three parts of the Trinity are here at this moment. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, they're all mentioned. Jesus is being baptized, God is speaking from heaven, and the Spirit descends like a dove. Just like the story of the flood, Jesus represents the ark, or the ark represents Jesus, I should say, that we must enter into and remain in to be saved. Just like the Red Sea and the Jordan River, Jesus becomes our salvation through his death and resurrection, that we are to put our faith and trust in him. The baptism of Christ is one of the few happenings besides the betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection that are recorded in all four Gospels. Now, John only references, makes a passing mention of it, of the baptism, but you can still find it there. Certainly an important part of Jesus' ministry. And so, if you just read the scripture um, casually, 
You might be surprised to find baptism spring up in the New Testament with Jesus because it doesn't really show up in the Old Testament. But as we look carefully through the Old Testament, we see the thread, the pattern of baptism throughout the Old Testament culminated there in Jesus Christ. Next, I want to look at baptism in the early church. And you can turn to the book of Acts. And I was amazed, surprised, shocked, you might say, at how many references there are in the book of Acts to baptism. And I believe this gives, gives us a strong indication that the early church really valued baptism. It was really important to them. And I believe it should be really important to us today as well. Acts 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse uh, 37 and 38 This is right after the day of Pentecost, and people were saying, oh my goodness, these men are full of wine, they've been drinking, they're speaking in all these different languages, and and, uh, Peter gets up and says, now wait a minute, these men are not full of wine, they're full of the Spirit. And then in verse 37, after Peter preached to them, it goes like this, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's something about repenting and being baptized. And I'm not sure if we can really put our finger on that, on exactly what the value of that is, exactly what the power of that is. But there's something, and you see that, again, throughout the New Testament, there's something about repenting and being baptized. There's a personal level of repentance, and then there's a public declaration of being baptized. When the two are connected together, there's a power there that I don't think we can fully understand and explain. And then in verse 41, they gladly received his word and were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So that's a factor of about 1,000 to what we have today. We have three here. There were 3,000 that day. What a joyous day. What an incredible day. 3,000 people repenting and being baptized. In Acts 8.12, when Philip went to Samaria after the death of Stephen, many were baptized there. In verse 36, Philip was with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he explained the passage of Isaiah 53 and explained how that pointed pointed to Christ. And what was the response? I want to be baptized. I want to be baptized. And the eunuch was baptized there. Acts 9.18, when Paul arrived at Damascus, after his experience with finding Christ or Christ finding him on the way, after he had received his sight again, he was baptized. Acts 10.47, when the Holy Ghost was poured out on the Gentiles, they were baptized. Acts 16.15, Lydia was baptized. Acts 16.33, after Paul and Silas were delivered from the jail in Philippi, the keeper of the prison and his family were baptized. Acts 18.8, a baptism in Corinth, when the chief synagogue ruler, his family, and many other Corinthians believed. Acts 19.3, in Ephesus, Paul found believers that were only baptized with John's baptism, and Paul shared with them that John's baptism of repentance pointed to Jesus Christ. It wasn't an end in itself, Repentance wasn't an end in itself, but it pointed to Christ. And then they were baptized again into the Lord Jesus. 
Acts 22.16, at Paul's trial, he recounts his story of repentance and baptism at at Damascus. So we see it again and again and again. And when you see something in Scripture again and again and again, you begin to understand that there's value there. Now, I believe that the early church understood baptism not as something glamorous, not as something to hold people up, but rather they saw baptism as a symbol, as symbolic of suffering and death. I want to make sure that we get a hold of that this morning. Romans 6, the passage that Marcus read for devotions, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, talks about death. Let's just turn there uh, and see how it says it in that passage. Um, Verse 4, verse 3, Know ye not that, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And so for the three of you this morning, you are baptized into Christ's death. Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, so we also should walk in newness of life. Colossians 2.12 also mentions being buried with Christ through baptism. But again, it's so that we can be raised with Christ from the dead to this new life. Matthew 20, when some of Jesus' disciples came to him and said, we want to sit beside you in your kingdom, Jesus responded by saying, can you drink the cup that I will drink and can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? I think that's an important question for us to ponder and answer this morning. Can I drink that cup? Can I be baptized with that baptism? Jesus goes on to say, you will. You will drink that cup and you will be baptized with that baptism. But it's not up to me who will sit on my right and on my left. Galatians 3.27 mentions that those who are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And so again, I believe that the early church and that Jesus understood that baptism is not something glamorous, but it's an acknowledgement that we are partakers in the death of Christ. I believe also that the early church saw it as a sign of unity. 1 Corinthians 12.13 mentions that by one spirit we are baptized into one body. And one of the One of the values, one of the powerful things about having a baptism in a church like this this morning, where it's coupled with church membership, is the idea that you are now part of the body here. Yes, you're part of the global body, but in particular, you are part of the body here. By one spirit, you are baptized into one body, and there's the idea of unity there. So what's the significance of baptism for us today? As we have seen, baptism is a pattern that's woven throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament. And I'm sure there's more stories in the Old Testament that we could look at that point to this theme and ultimately point to Jesus Christ. Some of the themes God creating or providing a way through water 
a remnant that is saved, the remnant that God always spares to continue on. The remnant continues the story of godly people. Baptism is, is symbolic of dying with Christ or identifying with Christ. Again, the three of you are making a public declaration of identifying with Christ. It's symbolic of a new beginning or becoming a new man. This is a symbol today, not only to those of us sitting here, it's also a symbol to God and to the angels, both good and bad. And so there's more, I believe, looking on this morning than just what meets the eye here today. And this is something that was practiced in the early church. And so today, we are particularly thinking about Matt, Janessa, and Abby. The focus is especially on you three today because of your commitment. Not because of what you have done, but because of your commitment and of what God has done in you. And so I want to give us and have us think about some practical ideas, both for the three of you in relation to the church and then for the church in relation to the three of you. And so I'll give some ideas and tips here in relation to that. But I would also like to, to hear from the rest of you or have the rest of you share with these three after church, maybe some ideas that you have, something that helped you. You can probably remember back to your baptism. You were probably nervous. Uh, you were probably unsure of yourself. It's a little bit different being in the front of the church. And yet, I'm sure for most of us, it was a, ver- a very meaningful day. And so I believe what I would like to see is that those of you that are members here and others speak into the lives of these three, not only, not only today, but also moving forward. And so to the three of you, Matt, Janessa, and Abby, I want to encourage you to seek out a mentor. Find someone in church that you look up to. Find someone that you admire, someone whose spiritual life you want to emulate. Something beyond the physical. Not just that you want to do the work that they're doing, but that you want to emulate their spiritual life. Think of someone like that. Find someone like that in the church and ask them to meet with you periodically as you begin this journey. The second thing I want to encourage you to to do is be an example. So you will be the newest and probably the youngest members in our church here. But that doesn't excuse you. Be an example. I think about the passage in 1 Timothy where it mentions, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Rather, instead of that, be an example to the believers in the way that you talk, in the way that you conduct your life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to offer your talents and your gifts for use here at the church. Remember, in a body there are benefits. Being a part of the church here has a lot of benefits. You have received much here. You will, re- you will continue to receive much. Spiritual nourishment and input, friendships, relationships, care, and love. But you are also responsible now to give back to the church as well. God has given each of the three of you gifts and abilities that are unique to you. 
And those gifts and abilities and talents are not yours to use as you wish. But they're for you to give back to God for the benefit of his kingdom and for the benefit of the body. So I want you to encourage you to do that. Fourthly, seek to understand the statement of faith here and the standards of, of our practice. Ask questions. Push back if you don't understand. And, and we've had some of those interactions already uh, during our time, uh, during the classes before baptism here. <clears throat> Your parents are good people to ask questions of, but seek out other people in church that you can ask questions to. You know, children, we expect them to ask why. Why, why, why? And I think we should also expect new believers to ask why. So I would encourage the three of you to ask. Ask questions, particularly to the older members here. Why do we do this? How do you get excited about spiritual things? What do you do when you just feel dead and you feel like you're not connected to God? How do you overcome such and such temptation or struggle? You have a lot of resources right here in the church. Don't hesitate to ask. So four things, seek out a mentor, be an example, offer your talents and gifts, and seek to understand. Ask a lot of questions. To the church here, these three have grown up in our church. We've known them from little up. We know their families. But now it's different. Now it's different. They will be brother and sisters in Christ, and in particular in our church here. So let's give ourselves back to them as a result of this. As members of our church, we all together, mutually, have the responsibility now to care for them. To ask them how they are doing in their walk with the Lord. To give them advice, but also to hear their hearts. Be intentional about the example that you set for them. Remember, more is caught than is taught. Together, let's nurture, train, help, and develop them into strong believers in Christ. Yes, it's their decision, ultimately, how they will be and how they will relate to God. But we can encourage them and be there for them. So again, to the church, let's reach out to them and be proactive in encouraging them and helping them develop into what God has for them. Today is an exciting day. I believe that these three young people are excited. We are excited. And I believe as God considers your confession, your repentance, your desire to serve him, I believe he is also excited today. Baptism is a declaration of a good conscience towards God. It is a commitment of a covenant with God, and it's an acknowledgement of being dead with Christ and becoming a, new, becoming a new man. So God bless the three of you as you take this important step today on this special day. Let's kneel for a word of prayer.